Welcome to the Arab Tyram Annual Podcast, where we study authoritarianism and the similarities between the strategies and tactics it uses around the world, and how to resist it. We're Ahmed Gatnash and Iyad al-Baghdadi, and in this episode we're joined by Jamila Raqib, Executive Director of the Albert Einstein Institute, and we're talking about the power of nonviolence. In case you don't know, the Albert Einstein Institute is the institute founded by Professor Jean Sharp, the great scholar of nonviolence, to advance the study of nonviolent action and what fascinating research they have. What are the limits of nonviolent resistance? Could it have worked against the actual Nazis? In fact, was it used? And what's even the point of nonviolence? Are you trying to make them feel sorry for you? All that and more in this episode. <laughs> We've gone up to sit with Jamila Raqib of the Albert Einstein Institute, and we're just having a conversation to see what comes of it. So what we were just saying, basically, objections become objectives. We were talking about listing the different objections that people have to nonviolence. Um, people think it's synonymous with pacifism. Yeah, I think there's this long history of people who've been advocating for this, that there's, they've been dealing with a societies around the world that have questions about this means of struggle. There's, it's not very well known. We don't really highlight the history. We think that progress and human rights are won through violence. Hmm. We think that it's the most powerful thing you can do. But there's this thousands of years of rich history that I think people don't, are not very aware of. So we're not aware of our own societies that have used these means, and we're not aware of how they've been used globally. I think there are... Th- three kind of products that you could make to educate people on it. If, if I'm thinking like podcasts or video series, there are three mm-hmm. lines you could take. One of them is um, through objections. BuzzFeed does stuff like 10 things people believe about X. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing. 10 common objections on okay. violence answering them. One of them is case studies. So okay. an episode on Tunisia and how they did it, an episode sure. on South Africa. And one is history. Yeah. One of the the most uh, frequent things that people go to when we talk about this stuff is they go to the extremes. Yes. So they're like, yes. W- would you use nonviolence against Nazis, for example? Of course. Or would you use it against ISIS? And they, they are not aware that it has been used effectively. Of course, not as a strategy of, uh, not, not as a overall strategy, but tactically in many cases, in many small struggles, it actually was used effectively. I mean, I know the example for uh, of I believe it was Denmark, where the you know when when the Nazis wanted to round up uh, the Jewish population, they had to rely upon uh, the bureaucracy, the existing bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy just happened to lose the papers that saved the community. Yeah, it's called dis- disguised disobedience, right? Exactly. This is historically so a, a technique people have used that has not been very well studied. And so we don't understand the way in which it's played a role historically mm. in preventing genocide. Imagine, right? This is the most extreme form of violence in existence. So yeah, I absolutely agree that people often point to like where it's impossible. So it's impossible in cases where the opponent wants to do away with your whole population, that somehow it it requires us to convince this change of heart, right? Melting the heart. That's a common misconception, which I I kind of sympathize with. It's frustrating for me as someone who frequently 
tackles this topic online. But I also respect that you know people actually really need to really need to understand this point. They think that nonviolence is really about about achieving kind of uh, relying upon the conscience of the other side and achieving kind of a change of heart rather than simple stubbornness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this incredible sociologist, right, from the time of Gandhi, who said that nonviolent resistance is not about melting the heart of the opponent. It's about actually changing the heart of the oppressed so that they see their own power. So it's actually changing the uh, mindset of the population, not about somehow convincing the opponent about the justness of your cause, because that sadly may not be possible. And so we need to accept that. So Jamila, uh, as far as I know, I mean, Jean Sharp passed away uh, earlier this year. And as, as far as, of course, you're right now, I think you're the entirety of the Albert Einstein Institute, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. And you're kind of sitting on his entire intellectual legacy. And, you know, you invited me or I was invited through you to this event in the United States where you told us some really fascinating stories about, you know, like letters that you're finding and, and stuff like that. Like I, I men- you mentioned there was a handwritten letter. Was it from Einstein to, to Jean Sharp? Yeah, the there's, there's a whole series of correspondence. There's something like 15 or 16 letters back and forth with Albert Einstein when Jean was 26 or 27. And Einstein was two years before he passed away in 1953. So uh, Jean wrote to Einstein and said that, you know, I'm about to go to prison for refusing to participate in the Korean War. Not please get me out of prison. I accept this. I understand this is the price to pay for acting in accordance with my moral conscience. However, I have written a book. It's about Gandhi. It's about three cases in the Indian independence movement. And would you read this book? And uh, if you like what I say, perhaps you could write a introduction. And so Einstein responded to the 26-year-old Gene Sharp saying, you know, I don't know, but I hope I would act with your moral conscience if I was in your situation. So here's Gene, you know, making this decision, uh, being quite comfortable with it, but facing a serious cost for it. And the most intelligent, the most respected man, maybe alive at that point, says to him, I respect what you're doing. What you're doing is important. What you're doing is actually the greatest hope for mankind against dictatorship, against oppression, against rising authoritarianism, because this was, uh, of course, in the 1950s. Of course, I mean, I, mean that, I think that's the context that people miss. This was right after one of, uh, this was right after one of the the biggest uh, systematic uh, acts of genocide in, in probably human history. It's also during the McCarthy era, right, where basically Senator McCarthy was rounding up intellectuals and saying that we all need to believe the same thing and that anyone who defies authority is actually a traitor. And here was Gene doing something quite very, very controversial, saying he refuses to go to war. And Einstein was saying that the Gandhian method, nonviolent resistance, was the greatest hope for mankind against the, the most serious political questions of our time, which exist today. I didn't actually know anything about Gene as a person. I only knew that he was a scholar who studied nonviolence and I, I respected and admired his work, but just through that anecdote, I'm suddenly in love with him as a person as well. And I'm filled with jealousy that you got to work with him for so many years. 
He's a remarkable person, like a very kind person, a very intelligent person, a great mind, but also a giant in terms of his heart and his conscience and someone very accessible. This is what I was always so struck by that I started working with him when I was like 22 years old and that he was very open and you could talk to him about anything. You could express uh, questions and doubt. In fact, when I started working with him, the reason I was hired for the position was because I told him uh, what you're doing is naive. What you're doing doesn't work. He said that he understood why people justify the use of violence and that people who are uh, who have experienced oppression are going to you know uh, think that if violence is the real power right which is what many societies believe and if you want to take away or strip people of what is the greatest power then they're going to understandably reject that and that you know, Mike telling him that, you know, I think what you're saying sounds nice. It's very pretty, but it's not real. It doesn't work. He actually liked people questioning him. This Do is you- something that we actually hear very, very often as activists about human rights in general, that, you know, we like what you, you guys, you guys are nice, but this, this stuff doesn't work. And I think a lot of the stuff that we do on 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 our platform, on the Arab Tarnit Manual, on, on really everything we do is that we want to explain that there is a strategic logic behind all of this. It's not really just about nice people doing nice things. And I remember uh, meeting Egyptian activist and singer Rami Hassam once at a conference in Copenhagen. And I remember having a discussion with him about this. And I think we, we, we ended up talking about how Nonviolence is not pacifism, it's waging war by other means. That's exactly right. So, Jamila, I think we'd be remiss if we don't ask you a little bit about your background. And I, I believe your parents fled Afghanistan. In fact, I was with them. I was a baby. I was three years old. Uh, my dad was a colonel in the army. It was in the height of the Soviet invasion. And we uh, fled the war. And, and since then, I've lived in the shadow of this, this terrible violence and war that has affected my family and affected also my own life. So, so how, how did that factor in when you're 22 years old and you're like, this doesn't work, right? Yeah, I was very angry. I was very uh, sad, very angry person. Feeling very, I think at the root of it is a sense of helplessness. You know, that there's nothing you can do in the face of all of these kinds of um, forces that are far more powerful. And that we as humans and as a society are, are, are victims to, uh, again, forces that are far more powerful than I we I guess I'm, I'm starting to understand now what you said about, I mean, the quotation that you mentioned, it's that, that, that nonviolence is all about, it's not about changing uh, the heart of your enemy, but rather changing the, heart, the hearts of those on your side, of the oppressed. Because it's really about making people realize they have power. Mm-hmm. And I think that changes everything because a lot of the anger, the toxic anger, is really about helplessness and feeling feeling helpless and p- feeling powerless and feeling like you're basically consuming yourself on the inside because you actually are convinced that there is nothing you can do. That's absolutely it. So the, the helplessness is one of the roots of violence. And when you feel helpless, you react irrationally and you react yeah. emotionally. Because it's hard to emotionally make 
a decision to not be violent. When you're when you're emotional, you lash out, and that's violence. You don't lash out with non-violence. It, like a, a human psychology doesn't work that way. I'm not sure about that. Really? I mean, let's think about it. What is human nature? Human nature is to often do that which is in our interest. So if it's the violence thing, then people do violence. Because here's the thing. I think that through Jean's research and through the research of many other scholars, they found that when people make the choice to use nonviolent means, they do so because they understand it offers advantages. So it's a rational decision. I think so. That's, Just that's as violence is often rational too, right? Uh, I mean, I'm not I, sure. I think violence can be our primal almost pre-human instinct that we retain from before we evolved into homo sapiens with higher reasoning powers. You know what? So is nonviolence thing though. Really? The, non- the nonviolence is, Jean always tells a story and, and I mean, please forgive me because Jean was my teacher. And so, you know, I mean, uh, everything I learned or much of what I learned is from him. But he says that nonviolent uh, resistance is so human. It's actually as human as violence, if not more. In fact, it's animals do it right the idea that by your action by what you do or what you refuse to do that you can make life difficult for someone trying to make you do something i mean that is a very human thing that's a very human thing so i mean it's basically stubbornness stubbornness right stubbornness for political purposes i guess and then if you put it that way yeah i mean it is i think both of these things are human sure but I, i i do also understand what ahmed is saying here because I actually recently read a study that's been done on squirrels about how they get frustrated and lash out. The, the result uprising. of seriously, no, it was really about how how um, frustration leads that can help them crack a nut, because then you know they're they're filled with this you know like basically you know this this let's let's lash out. Right. Yeah, I mean, and if you think about a primal you know pre-human kind of creature. That might actually help you, you know, uh, you know, open a coconut or something. Sure, you know? sure. But that doesn't mean that nonviolence or what we call stubbornness over here is not also part of that evolutionary response as well. Most of the time, when I speak about nonviolence to people who are very hard to be convinced, if you if you speak to them about morality, they switch off. They immediately get they either get offended or they feel like you know you're not being serious. You're being sanctimonious to us. You're exactly. telling us yeah. And you're not acknowledging their injustice. Exactly. So they feel hurt. Yes. And, and this is something, by the way, that I've experienced with, with many Syrian friends and followers, uh, where they actually are hurt. I mean, they're like, you know, what, what, what you're talking about. I mean, they know that I'm someone who's deeply sympathetic with their cause. And maybe that's what makes them more likely to tell me. Mm-hmm. But there are others who might not even tell me. They just switch, switch off, off. Right. Uh, however, when I say, hey, this is what works, it's not about morality, it's just simply about what works. That's when I think you kind of access a different level of thinking among, mm-hmm. among people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to the, to the whole question of Gene Sharp's legacy and these amazing, you know, letters and notes and notebooks that you're discovering. What's, what's the plan going forward with, with this amazing kind of almost a museum's worth of nonviolence research. I mean, what do you do with this body of work that's 
taken decades to produce that are basically a whole combination of unpublished letters and manuscripts and thoughts uh, in relation to a world that's changing in relation to, for example, you know, the things he wrote after 9-11 and the things he wrote during the Cold War and then, you know, everything since. And I mean, what do you do with this? What, what do you do with this? How do you share it with the wider public? Because there's trip reports. And I think I mentioned to you, Yad, that there was, there's this handwritten like 60 pages with Tiananmen Square activists, right? So this is during during the uprising, a few days before the crackdown. He's wow. asking them the very questions that you and I might ask them. Do you have a plan? What will you do if there's repression? What is your model of leadership? You know, how are you getting the people in the countryside to join? You know, he's asking them all of these questions and then here we have these answers in real time. I mean, it's incredibly valuable knowledge. And I, mean, I almost feel bad that I, that I said museum because a, a museum where, is where you put stuff that it's probably dead. isn't yeah, isn't isn't in use, or you know, you're kind of memor, you know memorializing it. Yeah. Uh, but this is actually more of uh, you know. This is the future. How is it that I can share this with people who are wanting to learn from it in real time for their own struggles? Mm. And then, how do you translate this? this data basically for ongoing movements you know this is this is the question that consumes me the thing that immediately jumps into my head is that we have to make some kind of database which is and we could spend the rest of our lives basically mining it and producing podcasts and articles etc but what if we make a database publicly accessible so that everyone can help us mine it and everyone can help us produce this different types of media? This is, this is the basic idea, right? That how do you archive this? Working with an archivist who is very knowledgeable about this because there's the historic stuff, right? There's stuff from the 1950s where he was writing with, I mean, so the, the chief strategist for Dr. King was, was someone named uh, Reverend James Lawson. And James Lawson was from Ohio where Gene was from Ohio and they used to like go square dancing together and like they were friends right in their 20s and so they were discussing like okay these are the serious problems faced in our world today oppression and violence poverty we have atomic weapons the rise of totalitarianism we have you know world war ii and all this so as individuals who are thoughtful who want to contribute what do we do so we have this correspondence back and forth with the chief strategist who then went on to live in India and bring back the knowledge that made the civil rights movement as effective as it was. So I have these, I have these letters of people, young people, right? Who probably write to you, Ahmed, who probably write to you, Yad, who write to me saying, you know, we're facing a very dark world. So what's our role in helping to make it better? Right. I say to them, at least, guess what? Gene Sharp didn't have the answers at 20, at 25. He didn't have the answers. He was searching for them. So we all searching for them. These letters, right, are so exciting to me. Like I have a whole folder of like correspondence between Gene Sharp and James Lawson. They're, they're letters written like they're poetry. I mean, these are very gifted writers or very gifted thinkers. There are people that write as if they were, yeah, anyway, I, I can share them with In you In a guys. way that they don't really write today the, the, anymore. I, I, I don't know. I think probably... No emojis, like they don't have emojis. Well, anybody, when we die, will anybody care about our WhatsApp messages? <laughs> 
No, you know what? I, 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 th- I talk about this sometimes with Media Lab people and they're like, no, now we have like different types of data. Now we have recordings we didn't have then. Right. So we have more data, but it is incredibly inspirational. There's this there's this letter that I always think about. It's a guy that was like one of the do you guys know, like the beat generation, right? Like John Kerouac. And so uh, basically the number two beat generation guy happened to be friends with Gene. Right. So when Gene was going to prison, he had this correspondence with Albert Einstein. And then he told this guy like, okay, so I'm going to prison. Um, And then this guy was in the courtroom at the time so the letter that he writes to gene in prison when gene is then convicted to two years in prison is this letter that's incredible and it says basically like i was in the courtroom you know you quoted from albert einstein you also quoted from jesus i think that the judge was more affected by the letters from einstein and it described like exactly what happened in the courtroom I want to share these letters somehow with you. I, I really think I that, I mean, I completely, I completely back Ahmed's idea that sometimes instead of, you kind of, op- if you open it, if you put it kind of like, create kind of a non-violence Wikipedia. So what do I do? Just scan it, digitize it, and then dump it somewhere? That can't what, be it. Yeah, that well, can't be it. Well, that will be part of it. I That'll still like first it. step. I'll yeah. give you an example, uh, a completely different example. You know, like the Bin Laden files? No, I don't. And, and I know, like, this is almost That's jarring exactly in dissonance, yeah? <laughs> because what happened here is that, uh, I mean, when Bin Laden was captured, there's this, you know, uh, a treasure trove of basically notebooks and, and, and recordings and, 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 you know, hard disk content. And a lot of it is crap, but some of it is incredibly insightful about his mentality and what okay, he was thinking. Okay, okay. It was, it's, 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 I think, how many terabytes is it? No, it's like 500 gigabytes. Gigabyte. They basically got the entire contents of his hard drive. And it's available uh, to the public. And compressed them into a folder and stuck them in an archive online. And anyone can download it and analyze it and like, try to study how this guy thinks, what we can pull from it. Um, so I'm not saying that all we should do is do like a file dump, but let's do a file dump and then figure out what we're going to do and other people can also do what they're going to do. Okay, I'm going to have to call on you guys for some yeah, guidance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it'll be really, really cool in, in a certain way that you're actually using an idea from Bin Laden to, to, uh, <laughs> to the, Bin Laden, the Bin Laden files model to, to, to kind of promote nonviolence. I mean, let's talk about the second track here. The second track is popularization. Mm-hmm. And popularization is really a, a topic that Ahmed and I have been speaking a lot about for the last two years, which is uh, bridging the gap between academic uh, knowledge and, and public knowledge. So our interest is liberal values Mm-hmm. in the Islamic world and how we can articulate liberal ideas mm-hmm. in a way such that people cannot object to them by saying that mm-hmm. these are Western ideas mm-hmm. because we'd be sourcing them directly from within our own mm-hmm. heritage and our own intellectual tradition. How do you get this kind of stuff and get it to reach mass market rather mm-hmm. than being like intellectual mm-hmm. and ivory mm-hmm. tower? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of cultural it's products? Such an important question. Keep in mind also that sometimes you you really want to know who your audience is, mm-hmm. and sometimes you might be unfair to yourself by assuming that everybody should be interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's true. rather I think people switch on and they start to become interested in these topics when they have a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Yeah, this has been a big question for Gene for a long time. You know, because here's someone who's very very academic. He wrote books that were very theoretical. They 
they were not like his own inventions they were borrowed from the classical political theory some of it's very dense but then the question for people especially at like academic conferences was how do you create material not for library shelves but for regular people and so he always like you know had to had to kind of answer that question and i was often in a very good position to answer it because for the 15 years that i worked with him i saw like how were people using it how were people accessing it and then to try to figure out like how do you facilitate that access especially again the theoretical stuff again he wrote very clearly so he's a gifted writer you guys have read his stuff it's in many ways very easily accessible for people it is accessible and i think i mean i can tell you from from interacting with with people who ask these questions within my audience, who happen to be, a lot of them happen to be within the Arab world, translation can go a very long way. Putting it on YouTube and SoundCloud, I mean, podcasts, different multimedia can go a long way. Getting case studies that are accessible and relatable can go a long way. And answering the main objections can can go a very long way. Uh, This can actually do kind of like more than 50% of the work. There's an analogy that I want to mention, which is, um, it's from business. And it's basically, it's, it's, it's known now that with startups, the person who founds a company and takes it through that first stage from being like three people in a garage to being an actual company is very rarely the right person who takes it from being, you know, a large quickly growing company to an entrenched conglomerate. But what I'm basically thinking is we shouldn't fall into the trap of basically thinking we need to carry on exactly the work of Gene Sharp or we need yeah. another Gene Sharp. He didn't, he, he never intended that, right? Yeah, he but was he's some, built the foundation. Yeah. He's done that work. Just, he was uh, very, very clear on that, right? This is not work like fossilized in stone. It's always meant to be added to and refined and that you make sense of it and you take ownership of it and you, uh, you know, you, you create a new model for the changing world we live in. Yeah, he was very clear on that. I mean, this was always, again, what Jean always used to say, that we don't want that people reject this without understanding it. So Mm. if you, after understanding how it works, what its potential is, how it's been used throughout history, if then you decide this is not a technique you want to employ in your your own society, then... That's an informed decision. different. But the problem is people are making their decision based on incomplete understanding without mm. access to resources. And so this is why knowledge becomes so key. Yeah. And um, I know that you formally study nonviolence. I don't know if you do evangelism, like whether you go out like persuading people and explaining it to them face to face. But I'm wondering if you meet someone who has never like heard of nonviolence, they've been in a bit of a bubble, uh, they've never been interested in politi- politics and political change. How do you explain what nonviolence is to them? Where do you start? So evangelism, for some reason, carries such a like negative connotation, but I know how you uh, mean it. There's a book called Selling the Dream by Guy Kawasaki. Okay. Who was, he had a title. He was chief evangelism officer for Apple oh. in like the 80s. And his job was basically to go around to developers, like software developers and like basically evangelize Apple to them and tell them, you know, this is an amazing product. This is going to be better than that Microsoft thing. You should be writing software for this. So why shouldn't we have that? Exactly. Why shouldn't we why have that? Why aren't we evangelizing this? nonviolence? Yeah, yeah. 
So I am so, again, heavily influenced by not just Gene, but the institution he created, which has a set of policies and a culture, right? That was very clearly defined, right? We have like a list of rules of what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And so the idea was that with an organization so tiny, with such a low capacity, and also because of like the, the deliberate policy was we don't go out to evangelize, we don't mm-hmm. go out to convert. He had this belief in the better mousetrap theory, right? Also from marketing. Yeah. So he said, you know, our job therefore becomes quite simple, that in a world where people are not making informed choices about whether they use the violence or the nonviolent resistance, that making information available as widely as possible, as high quality as possible, without the kind of persuasion piece, then people can themselves seek out this information Mm. and that there's enough demand for it that they'll find it. Now, this is where we're reaching this point of, well, what more could we do? And we're basically saying that the, this, so that analogy of the skills needed to take a company off the ground are different from the skills needed to systematize it and run it permanently. Maybe we are reaching that point where we're basically saying the kind of work and policies and uh, systems that the, the Albert Einstein Institute has had up until now were the right systems for the work it's been doing up until now. And this is an inflection point where maybe it transitions from being a research institution to being more of a media powerhouse. Maybe which... that's true. And maybe in and, and, and I think it's totally fine and it's totally appropriate and um and it's up to us. It's oh. up to us to do the next phase, right? And we have a world right now where there's a lot of inspiration, a lot of activism, a lot of action, but not a lot of strategy. But what if um how do you teach how do you teach the substance? How do you teach the strategy? First, I'm going to say, what if the excitement isn't a bad thing? You're not going to get 100% of the population understanding nonviolent theory. No, you're right. What if you just say, for example, we're going to try and reach 40% of the population and just excite them about these 198 methods? And maybe 15% of them will be interested enough to delve deeper and come on the website where they'll find the blog posts, the archived documents, the videos, the podcasts, the hour-long documentaries we've been doing. What's the goal? The goal is so that people from, people can come from different places. Maybe someone has never heard of nonviolence. Maybe someone is a seasoned activist who hasn't ever been very strategic about it and they've just been like a, a serial protest organizer. Maybe someone is a disillusioned diplomat who wants to look at different ways of affecting change. People can come from sort of different locations in society and, and learn. And basically, it, there's a or funnel where they all come towards nonviolence and learn from where they are and end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. And they basically learn to, it's almost like a menu where you can pick the bits which are relevant to you and decide how to apply them in your life. And like you said, the material is there and whoever wants to can come and read it. Only it's there in a lot of different ways. Because I've been struggling with this, right? So I'm often, when I look at my um, audience, I'm looking at people who've already bypassed the misconceptions. They're already at a point where they want to learn strategy, right? So maybe we're not there yet for a whole segment of the population that needs to actually reach there. So for them, maybe something else is suitable. For me, I'm thinking like, okay, so how do you convey to people the different models for leadership, for example, in a very compelling way? How do you explain the theory of power? How do you 
explain methods and tactics? How do you explain how to sequence methods and tactics so they build power? Well, what if you had multiple curriculums which went into varying levels of depth? I was That's with a, eventually the goal. I was yeah. with a Bolivian activist called Janice Daza. Yeah, she's amazing. But we speculated, what if you abolished a nation's military yeah. and kept mandatory, quote-unquote, military service, yes. but on that military service, you basically taught your entire population to a very deep level of understanding, non-violent methods. Okay. You would basically be uninvadable. You know this is a whole field of study. No, it's I It's called civilian-based defense. And it's about how do you prepare a population to resist invasion or internal aggression. And it stems from Gene Sharp's work, but it's been studied very heavily. There's a whole body of work related to it with like heavy, heavy, I mean, lots of literature about it. And there's whole countries that have put it as a component of their defense policy, wow. including the Baltics, so including I Thailand, have- Sweden. But basically, the again, I think the Baltic nations are the best example. And there's some really, really interesting stuff now. So basically, Lithuania Defense Ministry has put out a manual. It's like 100 pages that's been published. Like I don't, So it's, it's been distributed to tens of thousands of people through their institutions, through their school system, through their NGOs. And it's basically about how to make the population ungovernable should there be invasion from their neighbors. Wow, that is exciting. Yeah. They even put like, they put a statue of Gandhi looking toward Russia. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, there there's so much depth to this, so much huge potential to this. And we, and Gene always said, you know, like they always said, you know, okay, the violent thing works sometimes. What do you want? Do you want people to do away with the military? And he said, well, maybe, maybe that's not necessary right now. Okay. Maybe that is the hope. So, so we're talking about how do you replace violent means with nonviolent means as an instrument of policy, both by governments and by resistance movements. So governments use violence for a variety of means. And so do resistance movements. So if we can incrementally replace parts of that, then we may get to a point where violence is no longer needed. So for example, you, you could, Imagine that I'm part of the Albert Einstein Institute's audience. And like you said, the the material is out there. There are people who are already studying this and producing material on this. I'm just not aware of this. Maybe part of the Albert Einstein Institute's job is to produce material, which is basically making you aware of what is already being done with this legacy. So um, you mentioned like um, maybe short video series aren't going to give people like the understanding of the strategy maybe they don't need to maybe they just need to tell you by the way did you know that sweden is doing this thing and it's really cool mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it shows mm-hmm. how far gene mm-hmm. chop's legacy has already gone mm-hmm, and and that's evangelism mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the end of the day isn't that what it is i mean again i think that where the evangelism piece is somehow like off-putting to so many people and off-putting to like our organization is the idea that you somehow want to insert an ideology or a belief system or a moral system and so if you remove that and you're basically presenting based on a rational argument then that type of evangelism i can get totally behind you basically just want to shout about this stuff from the rooftops absolutely I live for this, of course. It's such a, so, so incredibly exciting. And I think that when we were talking earlier about the sense of helplessness and, you know, what our own backgrounds have, you know, how they drive us to do this work and to search for solutions, we realize like the solutions are out there. They belong to all of us. They belong not to the West or the East. They're actually very human. And that, you know, that's so incredibly empowering. 
right? That actually we can, you know, kind of harness this power that exists in society, that has exists in history, that we don't understand very well, but we can understand better. And in spite of the fact that we don't understand it very well, it's had these massive achievements. Then you think, if we've done this much so far, then what more can we do? But we're facing a world now where we have a lot of people studying how to undermine this, how to defeat it. There's research institutions designed to understand civil disobedience and the way in which it can be used to further particular interests and also to undermine them in, even before they kind of gain hold. This is the new reality we're facing. So I have some preconceptions, but where is this happening? Yeah, there's a like a research institution in the uh, I mean, Department of uh, Ministry of Defense of Russia uh, in China and yeah. Singapore and Malaysia, Israel and the United States. Energy companies, risk assessment firms in London are advising energy companies about how to understand civil disobedience as a, as a way that it cuts into their profits. And so basically, you, when a, when an energy company comes to a, a firm, they'll advise you not to go into a community that is equipped to fight them using civil disobedience. Because if a grandmother can interrupt your operations that are $100,000 a day, for your fracking operation, then maybe you're going to go somewhere else. This is like, mm. you know, nonviolent arms race. Basically. So these guys basically already understand the value of nonviolence, even if we don't. Understand it better. This is the part that, you know, I started by saying I'm so excited, but this is the part that really gets me very concerned. So we're basically losing an arms race right now. We're losing an arms race. I think we're losing it. In spite of the persistence and stubbornness, creativity, courage, and and all that bravery that we know comes very naturally to humans, we're still behind. In a way, that's not that doesn't really surprise me because if you think about how many departments of war studies there are out there, how many people there are who are full-time, like, like these PhDs and scholars who are devoting their lives mm-hmm. to studying mm-hmm. violence mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to studying undermining mm-hmm. nonviolence, how mm-hmm. many people are there who are out there studying uh, nonviolent resistance? Yeah. They're now studying it, but again, to learn how to undermine and defeat it. And when people ask me, like, so what are they learning? Guess what they're learning? They're learning that the best way to undermine nonviolent resistance movements is to either provoke violence, even to commit it in the name of the resistance. It's not provocateurs, right? This is something going back to, like, 18th century. You know, the Russians put, like, agents into Mm. resistance movements, not just to provoke violence, but to commit it. A couple of months ago, me and Iyad finished our book, finished writing our book, The Vicious Triangle, Terrorists, mm-hmm. Tyrants in the West. There's mm-hmm. a chapter in there which is a case study of the Syrian revolution. Mm-hmm. And we basically look at, it was a difficult mm-hmm. chapter to write, not because of a dearth of evidence, but because there was so much evidence that I didn't know how to organize this. Mm-hmm. The sheer amount of evidence that President Bashar al-Assad of Syria deliberately not only turned a blind eye to jihadist movements, but actively supported them and enabled them in order to infect the, yes. the, the opposition with violence. Yes. Yes, that makes complete sense. I mean, come on, put yourself in the minds of But it, it these is guys. kind of diabolical. You wouldn't think of this like off the top of your head that I'm facing opposition. Oh, I know. I'm going to strategically release jihadists over a period of time and give them self-passage into the opposition's territory and then 
specifically Why? not it's been done bombing. a lot. The idea that some of the most extremist elements in Afghanistan were supported at the detriment of people advocating for human rights, people that were very, very active in resisting the, the Soviets, but who were, you know, uh, not inserting ideology. They were not saying it was a religious war necessarily. You know, but here we had uh, massive investment into supporting the most extreme elements. I think they're getting better, more sophisticated. And you've seen this. I mean, this is kind of across the board, the kind of conclusion that historians and students of kind of authoritarianism are coming to that authoritarianism looks more sophisticated, more savvy than the authoritarianisms of, you know, the past. Yeah, they're getting better at it because they're recognizing that closing off your society like a North Korea style doesn't work very well. That actually you have the facade of, um, you know, human rights, of elections. And there's evolutions like Propaganda 2.0, which says that instead of outright lying to people, yeah. you make them doubt everything around them. Absolutely. And in some ways, it's far more effective. And we, in many ways, are ill-equipped to deal with this. I think as a first step, we need to be aware it's happening. And I think we're, we're not. But anyway, do you have like any, is any clearer idea percolating in your brain of what you want to do? Or are you still in the like fuzzy cloud stage? I think that I have a few basic principles in mind that the idea does not have to be perfect, that it can be tested that it can be tested in a way where I'm not uh, playing, you know, with people's lives. This mm. is the big concern. A, because I am not a academic. I'm not a, um, I, I see myself very much. Uh, I'm still at the end of the day going to be like an Afghan who is like seeing her own people and like saddened by the suffering and, you know, even in human rights, we have people who are just removed from like oppression, right? Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, I have a culture and a, a like a set of policies that guide me that I learned from one of the best. But also myself, I'm just always concerned about do no harm, right? This is the guiding principle for my work mm -hmm. that people have enough problems without you. Are you afraid that you could do harm? Yeah, absolutely. How? Many different ways. I can give you a lot of examples. I think that we speak with some authority now, that I think that there can be a potential to, especially people desperate for guidance. Because, you know, that's part of the problem with helplessness is that you look to somebody else for answers. So the Even fear for nonviolent resistance, you, you look to somebody else for answers. So the fear is that people might endanger themselves if they get bad advice. People are constantly asking me what to do. It sounds, sounds very that, that counterintuitive. Yeah. So we are saying 80% of the time, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. These are societies very complex, as you know, every society. I think saying that there are basic principles that could be useful. And also these are the cases that could be useful. And then at the end, I am basically a almost like coach for mm. particular people, a okay. whole variety of them. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, the idea that whatever it is can be experimental. I think the problem is, is that most people in nonviolent resistance are learning by trial and error. Mm. They're learning by doing, but it's so costly. So my goal is to figure out how to reduce that cost, the learning cost. Mm. And the, my favorite thing that you've told me today is, um, 
the fact that Jean welcomed you in more when you questioned him. That's exactly the attitude that we need to have. You know, there are no sacred cows here. Mm -hmm. We we can't mm -hmm. afford to have sacred mm -hmm. cows. And we need to welcome challenge because mm -hmm. it makes us stronger. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're looking for how to educate people about nonviolence, mm -hmm. there's very limited kind of benefit you can get in listening to what people mm -hmm. who already understand nonviolence mm -hmm. tell yeah, you. Sure. It's the people who don't understand who are going yeah. to be telling yeah. you how to persuade them. And at the end of the day, I don't know how you live. I don't want to make assumptions, but I live very comfortably and I'm not in a position to, again, not welcome the questions. If we're to have any kind of impact, we have to welcome the tough questions. This has to stand up to debate, to say, like, you're wrong for asking those questions. No, this I don't think that works very well. I don't think it's wise mm. and I don't think it's the right approach. Bottom line, nonviolence is a strategic decision. It is war by other means, and the strongest arguments in favor of it aren't even the moral ones, which was definitely counterintuitive to me when I first began studying it. The revelation that there's an ongoing nonviolent arms race with institutes dedicated to researching how to preempt, undermine, and dissolve nonviolent disobedience is also something that's going to stay in my mind. A lot of stuff makes sense in light of that, such as attempts to undermine the US election in 2016 by pushing divisive fringe groups so people couldn't coalesce, and also the goal of disinformation in the 21st century. Not to make you believe falsehoods, but to make you doubt everyone and everything, because without trust, you can't organize. Anyway, I hope this episode has left you wanting more. If it has, do I have a treat for you? You're going to be hearing a lot more from Jamila in the coming months, as we're working on several collaborations between the Arab Tyrant Manual and the Albert Einstein Institute. That's all I'll say for now, but watch this space. And of course, the people who will find out first are those who are donating to support our work, our Patreon backers. If you want to join them, it's not too late and every dollar is massively appreciated, you can find us on patreon.com slash For more, follow us on Twitter. Links to all our profiles are in the description. You might also like episode 23, if you haven't heard it yet. The man who built a civil society in a war zone, about our friend Raed Ferris, who was a brilliant practitioner of nonviolence. He managed to build institutions and communities whilst also undermining the power of the regime and the extremists using many of the techniques that pop up in Gene Sharp's work. I don't think Raed ever studied nonviolence, but he just had an intuitive grasp of it. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. Thanks to Khulud and Sana for editing. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, a project of Kawakibi Foundation. Thank you.